Tonight I'd like to speak about um, fixation to view and the release of that fixation. I'd like to begin by reading something from a Tibetan master called Dugo Kinso Rinpoche, who has now passed away maybe about um, four years ago or so. And I had the good fortune of meeting Dugo Kensei before he died, and um, only just a brief time in Bodhgaya in India. And in my meeting with him, in the, in the presence of being with him, he really seemed to me like to radiate what I imagine the Buddha must have radiated, um, a very incredible power of, of, uh, of strength in his just simple presence of being without uh, needing to be anybody else who, but who he was. This is what Dugo Kenti says, like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds. But all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thought should have so much power over us nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. And I think that's very interesting because I'm sure you've noticed at this time, as your mindfulness gets stronger and you're able to see more clearly the, what your mind is doing, how, how the thoughts in our minds, the images in our minds seem to have so much power. They, they somehow seem to take on a reality and they, that reality becomes the true and only reality for a period of time. We can find ourselves just getting pulled here and there and here and there. You know, it seems just it's the, it's the predicament of being a human being, it seems, for the most part, that the mind is very strong and it seems like it takes quite a lot to untangle ourselves from all of that, um, we might say, confusion on one level, but all the activity and restlessness that goes on in our thinking mind. I think that for many people, until they come to some kind of meditation practice or they have some teachings or some, some information that actually turns the attention, the awareness back to the mind, many people may not even be aware that there are thoughts. Now, that there are thoughts that shape our reality, that give control to our reality, that there are images that we follow and believe in. I think that that reality of the identification with the mind is so strong and so conditioned that for the most part it's never questioned at all. It's never really, <laughs> it's not anything that one could at this time step out of and say, yeah, that's what's going on. There isn't, for many, many people, very much self-reflection. So the fact that there is already some self-reflection, that you're able to actually sit quietly and have enough space in your mind that you can say, oh yeah, that's a thought. That's really quite remarkable. 
And I want to also, you know, point out that, as, as I did the other night, it's very sophisticated. It's a very sophisticated leap in consciousness to be able to reflect back and say, oh yeah, that's a thought, or that's a picture, or that's a dream state, you know, or a certain mind state that's passing through. So we use the mindfulness and the meditation to begin to understand some of the ways that this mind is operating. We can see, we actually can see and have some sense of how we get carried away. And it's just, we drift away. I mean, where do we go? I don't know. You know, because when I drift away, there's no awareness there to know where I drift away to. So I don't know what happens. It's only, I only have the awareness to know when I return. Oh, yeah, I, well, what just happened then? Oh, man, I was gone for a long time. Like this gap in consciousness, you know, a gap in time. But we know there's something that starts to know that. And then we can, we can see, we can be conscious of the thoughts sometimes as they arise. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking about this. Or I'm having pictures of this. I know about this. But for the most part, we are very entangled in our thoughts and images. And we're so conditioned by them that they, they control our lives and give shape to how we perceive reality. We, for the most part, don't even know what we're doing. We don't even know that we're doing this. We don't know how we're moving through our days and, and being uh, driven by these thoughts and images in our minds. There's one philosopher, I'm not sure who it was, who said, you are what you think. You are what you think. And in some way that's actually true. We, we become what we think. If there's not enough understanding and wisdom and some awareness about the process of the mind itself. So our work here, in many ways, is to untangle ourselves from the power that the mind has over us. And we can quiet ourselves down enough that we can start to see, we can start to see maybe in a moment a thought arising. Just say, oh yeah. And then with that awareness we may have the choice too whether we want to continue to follow that thought or not. The Buddha had a disciple named Bahia and he gave, the Buddha gave Bahia a, a training, a very, very beautiful training. And this is what he said to Bahia. He said, in the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, the thought, there is only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. What's being pointed to here by the Buddha is really what we're practicing here and really the simplicity of the training for us that we're able to be so present and so connected to just that what is seen, for example. Just the seen, there is only the seen. Without the mind coming in with all of its interpretations and ideas and uh, 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 descriptions and labels and stories that we put on top of a simple experience. The Buddha says, in the seen there is only the seen. But really, how often is our experience that simple? You know, it's happening so quickly, it seems, you know? How can we just stop for a moment and say, yeah, it's just the seeing. But maybe when you come onto a retreat such as this and you do this kind of meditation, maybe you have a moment like that, or a few moments like that, walking outside, seeing... I see people sometimes. There's a, there was um, a little moth that landed on the, the main stairwell going up to the, set, to the next floor. A little moth, and one person here was just looking at that moth on the step. 
so much silence, so much quiet, just those looking, just the seeing, without the mind coming in. I wonder if you're starting to have some sense of what that means, what the difference is between just the pure experience of the seeing and the hearing and the tasting and the touching, and maybe even just the pure, bare experience of the arising of a thought and the passing of that thought. Have you had enough space at any particular time where you've been able to experience in that way? Usually our mind is bound up. We're bound up in our worries and our regrets and our fears and our aversions and our angers, whatever it is. And the mind gets so constricted around those views and ideas that we're not really able to be very present at all. This is really in some ways the, the human predicament and the human tragedy how the mind gets so fixated that we are not able to connect, to engage with our immediate experience. This is a quote from the great Thai master Ajahn Shah, the forest Thai master. When he was asked what the greatest hindrance was that his students had, he said, opinions views and ideas about things. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They are too clever to listen to others. It is like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, it is useless. Only after the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. You must empty your minds of opinions, then you will see. So we know when we reflect on this, we know what a hindrance this can be for us when we're engaging in our lives, when we're in our relationships, when we're in a relationship to ourselves or to other people. How often are we able to meet another person, for example, in a really fresh way without carrying the burden of our past views and ideas about who this person is? What would it be like to actually engage with somebody, to meet somebody, without carrying that baggage from the past? Just to be with that person in a very fresh way. Maybe we've had that experience and we know what a joy it is. There, there can even be kind of a, a uh, what's the word, we can be so, so present and connected, it's kind of a almost a breathless kind of experience sometimes. It's like that, that level of intimacy, that level of connection, is, ah, you know, to be able to let go and be so present with that person can be really, um, I want to say, breathtaking. You know, how it takes the breath away. Let me tell you a story about a woman who was on a retreat with me um, in this past year or so. And she was telling me a story in one of the interviews about how she was caretaking for her elderly mother. And she was saying that there were so many difficulties with her mom, and, and, she was comp- and her mom was complaining, and she was very negative, and she was really difficult to be around. And when, she was, when this woman was on retreat, she had the picture, she had the image in her mind of herself lecturing her mother trying to get her mom to see how much she had to be grateful for. Have you ever been in that kind of situation where you say, why, how can you be so negative and complaining? Look how great your life is. You've got this, you've got health, you've got money, you've got this. What's wrong with you? You know? And she saw herself doing that, and then she saw the, 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 the response that she usually got, which was her mom just couldn't see she couldn't understand what she was on about, and she would. And then the woman uh, who was caretaking would just get upset and get frustrated, and just keep trying to get her to change. And she would get into this struggle and this this rigid dynamic with her mom, and she couldn't see any way out of it. She she was sure that the only way that she could feel 
satisfaction and happiness in herself is if her mother changed. So all of her energy went into getting her mother to change and tried to understand, don't you see what's wrong with you? And of course she would just get more and more upset and her mother would get upset. So she had, the woman on the retreat had this realization while she was there and she said, it was so lovely, you know, some people come to the interviews and they have these realizations and then she said, I realize that all I'm doing is fixating on what's wrong all the time. I just keep, my mind just keeps going to what's wrong. I fixate on her faults. And maybe what I can do is fixate, actually turn my mind, fixate a bit more on what's good about my mother, rather than always thinking about what's wrong with my mother. And she said, I don't have to actually try to fabricate that and try to make up what's good about my mother. She said, there really are very wonderful things about her. She said, but all I really need to do is just turn my mind towards those good qualities of my mother more of the time, rather than just always falling into that habit of fixation on the negative. She said, then I, maybe I'll really see my mother. I'll really see her in a way that I haven't seen her before. And I know this response is going to lead to more happiness for both me and for my mother. And she felt really excited about that possibility. She really could see where she was holding and what she was holding on to. And she could see how she just continued to reinforce that sense of herself and the other, self and other, that separation between them, because she wanted the situation to be different. And so there was so much joy and uh, happiness that was arising in her heart about this possibility. Now, of course, we can have these kinds of realizations, <laughs> and then we get back in the situation, and, you know, it's, we're right back in the same old thing again. But we, it, it doesn't disregard the fact that we've touched some true possibility of goodness of wholeness where there may be a potential escape, a potential, a potential way out of the rigid dynamic that we find ourselves in. So we, we do get our views, the way we're perceiving ourselves, the way we perceive others, is so conditioned from the past. It has all the momentum of our past lives that have rolled along for, for eons and eons and eons, I say. I mean, that's, you know, certainly this lifetime, uh, maybe previous lifetimes and lifetimes before that, eons and eons of time. We don't know how long these patterns have been rolling along. But they seem to have gained a lot of power, a lot of force, and it's hard sometimes to break through them. But yet if we can get a sense that what our minds are telling us, what the way that our minds are forming ideas may not necessarily be the truth. That thought itself may bring some space in the mind so that we may be able to perceive ourselves and others and the situation a little bit differently. Otherwise, we're just viewing through an old lens an old lens, and then we keep seeing things from the same distorted uh, uh, perception, and we feel the pain of that, we feel the suffering of that, because we, we're not seeing clearly, we're not seeing accurately. I wonder what kind of thoughts you've had about yourself today. What kind of views have formed about yourself today? I heard about a few of them in the interviews today. Some of them are really painful, because there's the belief in those ideas about yourself as being true. I wonder if just for a moment it might be possible to bring some doubt to what your mind is telling you, and think for a moment, well, maybe it's other than the way I think it is. On nearly every retreat, I love to share my favorite quote from the Buddha. This is actually my favorite quote of all the things that the Buddha said. 
this is the one that does it for me. <laughs> it's from the uh, middle-length saying called the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, it's a collection of the Buddhist discourses. Two lines where the Buddha says, non-identification with anything has been declared by the Blessed One. For in whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. In whatever way one is thinking about it, the fact is other than that. To me, this is a really profound statement to reflect on. And in and, and lately, this last year, I noticed that it is one that really pops into my mind when I notice that I'm starting to form some kind of a view that is bringing about some agitation or pain, whether it's a view about myself or another person. I say that to myself. I say, the fact is other than that. <laughs> and it, there's something that shifts for me as I do that. I just come out of that rigid dynamic momentarily, <laughs> hopefully for a little bit few more moments than, than just a moment. But something shifts and I can feel a little bit more spacious and open to the possibility that what I'm perceiving may not be the only way that this situation is. And it can help shift that. Here's another story about a woman on a retreat uh, this year um, who also was getting caught in a fixated view about herself. This one's about herself rather than another person. And she came into the interview and she was, she was talking about year, the years she has felt that she's been held back in her meditation practice. She, this was in... Uh, in, in, in Washington State, in America, but she was an English woman, interestingly enough, and she said she had, she had felt suppressed from her years, um, this is what she said, she felt suppressed from her conditioning as growing up as a child in England, and that she really wanted more spontaneity in her life. She wanted a sense of being able to just feel more free in the expression of herself. And then she had a fear that if she practiced meditation, she would actually become more detached from experience and become more rigid. She didn't think that meditation was necessarily going to lead her to more freedom and spontaneity, but that she would just get withdrawn and disconnected and then just fall more into that rigidity in herself. So we talked a little bit about that, and she said that she had this type. I said, well, how, how do you feel this, this suppression? How do, you, how do you feel this uh, constriction? And she said, I have a, a, a tight ball in my chest all the time. You know, right, right here, it's a tight ball. And I can't seem to release it. I'm just caught up in this tight ball in my chest, and I feel the pain of that constriction. So I suggested to her that she leans into the tight ball. She really feels the tight ball in her chest, not try to get rid of it, which is what she continually tried to do all the time, to try to somehow overcome that tightness in her chest and push beyond it. But I said, lean into it, feel it. What's there? And she felt it and she said, yeah, there is a protective layer over my heart. But actually, it's been really necessary. It's been helpful for me. It's helped me to be in the world in a way that I may not have been able to be in the world before. But it's actually, now that I feel it, now that I'm there with it, I really see that it, it, it's been my friend. You know, it's helped me. And as we, be, as we continue to explore that, she, re, she started to feel very caring towards herself and that she, she could feel that she was actually okay, even with that tight sensation in her chest, that that didn't have to go away for her to feel that ease and that uh, relaxation in herself. Originally, her view, the view she had about that tight ball, was that she had to get rid of it before she could feel that ease of relaxation. 
before she could feel free in herself. And her mind kept fixating on the sensation as evidence that she wasn't okay. Do you hear that? Like the mind would have contact with that, with that sensation, and then she'd say, yeah, I have a lot of work to do. I'm really suppressed. I'm, really, I'm never going to be free. And, so, and the sensation in the chest was a constant reminder of that because of her view of herself. She kept making it into a problem that had to be fixed. And I pointed out to her that this fixation in her mind, the fixation in her mind was actually what was blocking her from feeling the freedom. Not the sensation itself. The sensation is just a sensation. But what matters, what really makes the difference, is how that sensation is being viewed and the story that is being built up on top of that sensation. And in this case, there was a whole story of who she was and how she was in the world that grew and grew and grew and became very strong in her mind because of sensation around her heart. That's what we do. And in this and, and, and it blocks the possibility of really knowing one's deep beauty and freedom. So the interesting thing was that in the room that we were meeting in, there was a, a vase of, of red, a dozen red roses, very big vase of a dozen red roses. And somebody who put the roses in my room had tied around all the roses, there were 12 of them, these purple and red ribbon streamers. So that not, were there, that not only were there just these beautiful red roses, but there were all these purple and red streamers in the vase. And it kind of looked really over the top, as you say. <laughs> as you say. <laughs> really, really gaudy. So I said to her, I took one of the roses out of the vase and I said, here, this rose is for you so that it can remind you of, how, of your own real beauty so you can, be, you can remember that you are beautiful like this rose. And I said, but you have to take off this purple and red streamer because in that, in a way, is an exa- a symbol of what you've done. Somehow you've tied this thing around yourself to somehow make yourself into something different than you are or somehow try to build yourself up in some way. And you don't need it. You don't need it. The rose, your, ro- the, the, your, your rose beauty is enough in its simplicity. And she left. But in a way, that's what we're trying to do somehow. We do it so much of the time. We try to make ourselves into something different than what we are through our thoughts, through our views, through our ideas about ourselves. Somehow we don't think we are enough or somehow that we could be complete in the way that we are. This could be complete. (laughs) This could be whole. This could be enough. How hard it is to see ourselves without these distorted ideas, these distorted views. And whenever we do that, whenever we put this on top of ourselves, we build this this construction on top of ourselves and feel the weight of it, we just keep reinforcing the idea and live in that reality as true. What do we need to do so that we can go beyond this confining idea? This is from uh, the poet Emerson, another rose metaphor. These roses under my window make no reference to former roses or to better ones. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. There is no time for them. There is simply the rose. It is perfect in every moment of its existence. But people postpone or drift into memory, into thought. They do not live in the present. 
but with reverted eyes lament the past or heedless of the riches that surround them, stand on tiptoe to foresee the future. They cannot be happy and strong until they too live with nature in the present, above time. So much of what we're attempting to do here is to come out of that overlay of concept that we we continually put on top of our experience again and again and again. It's not bad that we do this. It's not wrong that we do this. You know, you might even notice kind of like a, a shrinking in like, oh God, you know, that's what I do, you know. But that's another judgment. It's another view. It's, it's just to see that we do that and, and to try to find some way to come out of it, to shift out of it so that we don't feel the pain of that way of perceiving from those old glasses that we wear on our face. When we take our views to be so real, this shapes our reality. There's a, a old story that I want to share with you, and this is one that Catherine gave to me this evening, and, and it's brought a lot of joy to both of us as we uh, kind of played with this one tonight. So I hope I can deliver it to you um, with the same delight that it brought to us. It's a story of, a, of an old Taoist meditation master who was living alone in his small hut in the woods. And stories circulated in the nearby town as to this man's unusual behavior. So a Confucian delegation was sent to go and check him out to see if everything was in order. And as they came to knock on the door of this uh, Taoist meditation master's hut, the leader of the delegation saw through the window that the Taoist master was sitting alone, cross-legged, on the floor with no pants on. Horrified, he didn't wait to knock. He barged into the hut and exclaimed, What is going on here? This is a disgrace. What I want to know is, what are you doing sitting in this hut with no pants on? And the Taoist master looked up serenely and he replied, Who says that this is so? In fact, from where I'm sitting, the whole world is my hut. This hut is my pants. And what I want to know is, what are you doing in my pants? There are many ways we can look at the world. <laughs> May bring to question what is the true reality here? <laughs> Our views really do seem so real to us, so believable to us. This is from uh, uh, Deepak Chopra. He says, uh, just from, from one of his books, he said, In our ageist culture, many women, instead of believing in their capacity to remain strong, attractive, and vital throughout their lives, instead come to expect their bodies and minds to deteriorate with age. Thus, we as a society collectively create a pattern of thoughts, behaviors, and fears that make it that much easier to manifest the worst physical reality. Interesting. So not only individually having thoughts about who we are in a way that is distorted and painful, but we can take that on collectively as a culture. And the power of that collective idea, the collective uh, image, can be so undermining that it can undermine our beauty, our strength. Is this not true? 
I picked this up from the Seattle Times last month. And the title of this article, I hope I can see it. The title of this article is called, In Africa, Big is Definitely Better. And I um, shared this last week, uh, a few weeks ago, when I was teaching at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. And it may have a little more, more poignant, poignancy in California, particularly because I had a number of, of friends who had come up from Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, um, there, are, there is a very strong cultural uh, idea of what women should look like there. And to the extent that, as you know, and as we all know, that the uh, cosmetic, uh, what do you call it, the um, cosmetic <laughs> surgery industry is a multi-billion dollar industry to help uh, women keep their youth and keep their beauty as they start to age and the body uh, degenerates and starts to fall apart as it always does for all human beings. And I read this uh, there with that in mind, knowing that there were some of those, some of, actually some of my friends who had been through cosmetic surgery. I'll read a, just a little bit of this. Here's how Isabel Zizan, Zina, and um, fellow contestants got ready for the big West Africa beauty pageant. They rested, they did their hair, and ate. Big bowls of porridge, greens, fried plantains, and the like. Tipping the scales up to 200 pounds, they ate all the while with compassion for those with other scrawnier notions of beauty, those misguided Miss Universes, those Miss World wannabes. This is what, um, one of, what, what Zizancina said. One of your misses, she follows a no-food diet. She's skinny. Her stomach is very flat here. She's bony here, she said, her hand fluttering up to her own rounded uh, collarbones. In Africa, we eat well to keep our shape. If ever there was an occasion to mull over what you think is beautiful and why, Queen of Ivory Coast could be it. Sponsors made clear they were looking for that classic guitar shape. Specifically, as the pageant rulebook noted in detailed, unblushing description of the ideal queen, in quotes, a rounded, full-fleshed bottom, well-developed and in movement when the woman moves. It's not by chance the pageant was in West Africa, where thin is not yet entirely in. Fat farms flourish here, not for the shedding of pounds, but for the getting of them. <laughs> Outside Africa, Americans and others spend billions of dollars to try to work off, diet off, or suck up fat. For much of Africa, however, plump still means prosperity. Thin represents everything you don't want. Poverty, AIDS, and other diseases, misery, and hunger. Interesting point of view. If we, this is what uh, one of the contestants said. If we see a woman like one of those misses universes, we think she doesn't get enough to eat, or maybe she's sick, or maybe she's mistreated by her husband. Queen of Ivory Coast started in 1999 to reinforce Africa's, Africans' own traditions of beauty. African women were getting a complex from the ads they see on TV. So our views, how strong they are, how strongly they conditioned they are, and yet do we really need to hold on to them so tightly? Can we really bring them into question just for a while here? Right now, take a moment to reflect for yourself. What view are you holding about yourself? What view are you holding about yourself? 
Maybe something's arisen today. Maybe you found yourself getting into some kind of fixated, contracted state, some pain. You think of anything, something that you see arising and brings agitation for you. And right now, can you ask yourself, are you attached to that view being true? Do you, do you feel you have to hold on to that view of yourself? Is it really serving you? Or is it something perhaps you're ready to let go of? And if you're ready to let go, maybe reinforce for yourself right now, I'm ready to let go of that view. I don't want to keep reinforcing this idea of myself because it's bringing me pain and misery. I want to let go. We need support, we need help in letting go because these views are so fixed in our minds. We, we need to appreciate any opportunity or any situation that reflects back to us the ways that we're holding, the ways that we're constricted, the ways that we can't see clearly. Can we invite these situations in? as I was speaking about last night, and be grateful, particularly other people. This is really what uh, our relationships are for, I think, because our, our closest relationships, they're the people who really show us where we're holding on to our ideas, where we're holding on to our constrictions, our attachments to our ideas. And it can be very helpful to perceive these people as our teachers, as our guides, as messengers for our own awakening, for our liberation. A friend of mine shared with me an exercise that is also helpful in helping us to uh, come out of the ways that we get fixated around a view, of, particularly in this case of ourselves. And he suggested that uh, we stand in front of a mirror. It's always good practice, standing in front of a mirror. We stand in front of a mirror and see if you can stand in front of that mirror and just see what the mirror is seeing just the facts of that reflection. The fact, the image itself that's being reflected back from the mirror does not, is not full of evaluation and judgment and comparison. It's just an image. It's just facts in color and shape and movement or whatever. The reflection is just a raw image of ourselves. And as we stand there in front of the mirror as an exercise and try to just see the raw image, notice what the mind brings in to that image. Ah, I'm really fit getting fat. <laughs> oh, I'm really getting thin. I've never really liked the way that I look. Oh, my hair, I've always tried to change. Why can't I get my hair the way? Look at those wrinkles. Oh, <laughs> All the extra that gets added on, on top of just the bare image, that which is seen. This is what we're carrying with our minds. This is what we bring with our thinking minds, with our conceptual minds. This is our imaginative, self-imposed reality that has no reality <laughs> outside of the power that we give it. 
to take that in for a moment. It has no reality outside of the reality that we're imposing on top of that image in this case. And so the third part of this exercise would be to see if we could stand there as these images, as these thoughts and judgments and evaluations are forming and see if we can just let them go and just keep steady with the image itself. Just let the thoughts go. Let the thoughts go. Not let them get fixated and take shape in the mind. See that these thoughts are coming from the past, the past idea of who we think we are, that they're not about the present reality. And can we be steady enough with our attention that we just stay with the seeing and see what can be seen in a fresh way, in an immediate way. And this is an exercise that we don't necessarily need to do just with the mirror. It's something we can do with with every situation as we move through the day, as we encounter uh, different experiences, different activities, when we're outside, when we're inside, when we're sitting at a lunch table, when we're back in our room, when we're lying down on the bed. This is a good time, too, when we go and lie down and start to rest. What's What's the difference between just the lying there and feeling our bodies lying on the bed and all that starts coming into the mind? And if there's awareness of that, we can make the choice to let it go. Just keep letting it go and keep sinking back into the presence of ourselves lying on the bed. I think this... uh, aspect of the practice here is so important where we actually see the difference between the bare reality and what the mind is imposing on top of that reality and realize that maybe there's another way of looking at this maybe there's another way of understanding this keeping what's called a more open mind, a more spacious mind. And it's this spacious quality of mind which really allows us to see more clearly the way things really are. It's the spacious quality of mind, the mind that's not just fixated and narrowed on a particular point of view, but that more spacious quality of mind that informs us that the way that we're thinking and perceiving isn't the only way to see it. It isn't the whole picture. And that spaciousness, the spacious quality, gives us a sense of a larger dimension to this existence. That there is actually more here than what meets our small little thinking mind. And our heart longs to touch that. We want to know that reality. We don't want to get caught up in our narrow, selfish, self-centered way of viewing things. We want to tap into that vaster dimension of this existence. And when the mind starts to crack a little bit, when we're not so caught up in the view of how we think things are, we feel the, the relief of that fixation. We feel the, the, the lightness, the vitality, the ease that starts to come through our being as we let go, as we open. This is what our heart wants to touch. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When we start to perceive reality 
in that way, we start to have insight into the conditions rising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. There's a moment of hearing, a moment of seeing, a moment of tasting, a moment of thinking. And we start to really feel into the insubstantiality of this existence. That in reality, nothing is solid and separate and isolated. But everything is really manifesting freely, openly, and dependently. When we start to touch that reality where the thingness of this life starts to lose its substance, we are not as dependent on things being a particular way, but there's more possibility to be able to receive things as they are in their changing, shifting manifestations. And we feel the happiness, the contentment that arises from this freedom of not holding on or needing things to be a certain way. This kind of happiness that we touch is called, in the Pali, it's called Lokatara Sukha. Lokatara Sukha. Sukha being happiness, and Lokatara meaning transcendent. A transcendent happiness. A happiness that is no longer dependent on the things of this world because we understand that they lose their thingness. Things are free, expressing themselves freely, not in a fixed and static way. This is from a Blackfoot hunter and warrior, Crowfoot, from 1877. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. And this is from the Diamond Sutra. Thus you shall think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lantern, a phantom, and a dream. Let's sit together for a few minutes. 